I think I'm going. I'm still waiting to confirm. There I am. Anybody on? Okay, we got some folks, it looks like. Hi, everybody. I already lost the little guy, the little, uh, what do you call it? The dampener. I think it's in the other room, but hopefully it'll still sound okay. I just need a little uh, confirmation from the gang that I sound all right, and then we can get going. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Beautiful day here in Brooklyn. Sun's out. Gun's out. It's a nice, like, 80-something. It's looking good. Thank you uh, to everyone who's been saying that I look weirdly thin lately. It's nice. But uh, I'll take it wherever I can get it. I, didn't, I cut my own hair. I, I used the shaver. I shaved my face. I shaved my beard down. And I realized that when I just let it go to, like, Marxian lengths, that it adds, like, 15 pounds to my head. Like, I do look like the Zardoz uh, um, head coming in, just waiting for guns and food bars to come shooting out of my mouth. The penis is evil. The gun is good. But then when I trim it down a little bit, it's like, oh, I, my face actually is like, it's narrowed by a good third. So... I think I'm going to try to not let it get that wild again, especially since I'm doing so much streaming now, and there's just my face. There's just, there's, now there's hundreds of hours of me on YouTube with just my head in the middle of a frame. And then, of course, you throw the hat on, and it's easier to uh, obscure the, the rapidly declining hairline. Uh... Well, thanks. Thank you for everyone. And I'll try to keep that in mind. I'll try to keep myself a little uh, more narrowly headed than I was. Oh, someone's saying my last uh, stream was good. Thank you. Uh, I get a little worried when I get abstract, you know, talking about the need to infuse meaning in public space through ritual and like a renewed uh, religious traditions. I know that that's kind of uh, out there, and I get worried about losing my ability to translate down to a more general understanding level, but uh, I'm still going to try, God damn it, even if it just ends up being dismissed by most everyone as gibberish. It's all I, it's, it's what makes sense to me right now, and that's all I can talk about. I can't, I can't be false. I can't be false for this long in front of a camera. Like, for me, I really find that, uh, this whole setup is like a truth. It's like an, it's like Errol Morris's Interatron or something, where just knowing that there's this audience out there, this Benthamite panopticon, and while I'm trying to, like, reason things out, it kind of squeezes all of the artifice away because I can't maintain it. It becomes too difficult to keep the lie straight, and I end up having to just, I have to just come clean, just so that I can keep talking and fill the fucking space with words. 
So that's why I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. And I think that honestly doing these has been really important to, to my personal uh, spiritual evolution to get, uh, to get real with it. So thank you for anyone who uh, is still finding any meaning out of these because that's what makes me feel like it's still worth doing and not totally self-indulgent. So, today I wanted to talk about something that's a little more, maybe, uh, a little more grounded, a little more historical, because I've been reading uh, Reaganland. I got an advanced copy through my media connections of uh, the new Rick Perlstein book that covers the Carter administration. I talked about it a bit before on, uh, on here, and uh, it's, it's very good. I just finished 19, it's, it's divided in years, and I just finished 1977. Uh, and, oh man, I'm, I got my hands, I'm rubbing them together. But already there's been a lot of great stuff. And what's really cool about uh, Pearlstein is that I think more than anyone, he understands the, uh, the real dialectical uh, dynamic, even if he isn't really a, a dialectician and he's like more of, he has a liberal sensibility and you know, his narrative is, is, is evolutionary without, you know, being fully three-dimensional. But he, um, he definitely gets that there is, like, a conflict driving the uh, emergence of, like, the Republican Party as we understand it. Like, we got here through a process. It's, like, not, it's, it, it's true to say, like, oh, these are the same Republicans they've always been. But that also obscures the fact that over the years they've changed. It's like a ship of Theseus thing. They fused and shifted. Uh, and it's the same people pursuing the same political goals. See, that's the important thing, is that the, the, base, the real base of power of the Republican Party, America's capitalist class, um, has not changed. Uh, what's changed has been the culture that changes within the economy have produced that requires the Republican Party, which is a political institution and has to reflect some sort of will of the people in some way to be legitimate as a political institution in a putative democracy. So they have to reflect the frustrations and, and, and alienations of their voters as neoliberalism uh, uh, immiserates them. I'm talking, of course, about, you know, from the, the middle class and lower Republican voters, including upper middle class, because people point out, oh, a lot of these Trump voters, they don't have, uh, they're not economically insecure. They have a lot of money. But the thing is, is it's not necessarily even your actual immiseration. It's the fear of immiseration, the fear of falling, as Barbara Ehrenreich said. Apparently, the, the, the rich people who, uh, who like Trump the most are the ones in congressional districts that have the most uh, poverty. Uh, uh, but are still, you know, like uh, segregated, so like white poverty, you know, places in like Appalachia in the Midwest that have been hammered by deindustrialization. And they still are doing well, so you can't say that they're miserable, but their neighbors are doing poorly, and their kids they know are going to do worse than them. So there's anxiety even if there isn't actual uh, immiseration. So the conditions on the ground for everybody who hasn't been at the very top of the distribution of income in this country over the last 40 years have been dog shit. Either you have lost it significantly and materially, or you fear losing it. Both of which create alienation from America, the, 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 the project of America. And that alienation has to go somewhere. 
And the job of the Republican Party is to keep it reactionary, to keep it fixated on uh, cultural demons, cultural spirits brought up by the conjuring wand of, uh, of the manufacturing of consent. Uh, immigrants, minorities, communists, whatever, uh, uh, abortion providers, uh, cultural Marxists. And that's been because things have gotten worse, and the Republican Party has to reflect that. And what Prostein gets is that the, that reality, that reality of a, of a widening gap between the, the commitment to the project of America, between the people who run the Republican Party and the people who vote for the Republican Party, has led to a cultural shift within the uh, Republican Party towards the sort of uh, blood-and-soil, uh, anti-intellectual, uh, tub-thumping populism of Trump. But it's not just culture changing. Significantly, it was resolving a conflict in the Republican Party between the internationalist wing, which is Wall Street, which was uh, embodied by Eisenhower uh, beating Taft at the 52 convention, and then, um, and then, um, and then Rockefeller. Uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller being the avatar of that. Uh, Wall Street... Uh, Wall Street Republicanism uh, that saw its interest aligned along an international line because they were the capitalists who had the most information, right? Because you can never say that the ruling class rules by their own interests, for their own interests. They rule for the perception of their own interests. And usually those are very close because they have a lot of information and power and that gives them the uh, tendrils to recognize the terrain more than ushmucks who don't have that kind of coordinated uh, intelligence gathering capability. So they have the most information, which means that they can control the situation more, but it's not total. There's a gap. The Dunning-Kruger thing that's inside every institution in person. Um, and, um, but they were closer to knowing the score. They were closer after World War II, looking at the global, world, global economy and the, and the Soviet Union and say, this is going to be, this is not going to be a, a military conflict. We're going to win by do creating a new dominant economic model that will be hegemonic. We will replace the patchwork exploitative system, extractive system of European colonialism, and we will replace it with a world system of raw, raw production extraction of the third world leading to consumption in the first. Uh, that's what we're going to build. And that requires standing up the economies of all our former enemies and infusing them with capital and eventually helping them establish their own uh, uh, competitive um, industrial economies to compete with us because they needed to be strong because otherwise they would be defeated. They saw that vision. But there were other Americans who ended up getting represented by Goldwater and then Reagan, uh, often thought of as the Sunbelt Cowboys who, who, won, who won the battle for the soul of the Republican Party. Those guys were local manufacturers, mostly. You're talking about a regional powerhouse. He, he mentions the Allen Bradley Company in, um, in Milwaukee, a perfect example. It's a, it's a local uh, like industrial supply company uh, that is also one of the premier fu uh, funders of race science. Uh, our Charles Murray got a ton of money from them. Uh, they have their own think tank that's trying to prove the, the, like, the racial superiority of white people. Uh, and, and they've spent m millions of dollars over the years uh, uh, on the kind of direct mail grassroots stimulation that led to the uh, creation of that, uh, that, that movement. 
Um, Robert Welch, the founder of the John Birch Society, was a small local candy manufacturer in Massachusetts. Uh, the Knott's Berry uh, family, who ended up, who, who now have a, a, a theme park in Orange County, uh, and uh, were like ba one of the one of the four families that basically monopolized uh, uh, a agriculture, cash crop agriculture in California in, in the 20th century. Another reactionary uh, uh, funder and and font, and that spoke to that middle class who didn't have that. They didn't have the interests. They weren't. They were being exploited by Wall Street. They didn't have interest in common Wall Street. Uh, and so they were actually, their real interests were opposed to the broad category of capital, but they didn't know that. But they, because they couldn't see the one in front of them because of the ideology that they had. They couldn't see the near exploiter. But they could see the far one, and they hated him. And so the near exploiter, these, uh, these new right guys who ended up becoming, you know, from Young Americans for Freedom and from the Goldwater campaign and then to Reagan, who provided the other poll, the poll that said, we don't need this international bullshit. We, should, uh, uh, we don't need to accommodate. And what that also meant is we don't have to accommodate to culture shift, which is why Wall Street liberalism was more socially liberal, because it knew the larger game was capitalism versus communism. They knew that that was the real stakes because they were international in their outlook. And that meant that when there's discontent along racial lines, you have to do something about it or you will undermine yourself against your enemy. The nearsighted, the nearsighted small producers didn't know if they they were unable essentially to perceive that level. They couldn't even see that dimension of reality because they're too focused on their own piggish local consumption. And they said, "No, we confront the Soviet Union, and we 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 destroy uh, anyone who tries to undermine our culture." And that became the real argument. And by the time Perlstein's talking. Uh, when Reagan is, goes from being ch close, almost getting Ford's nomination in 76 and then getting the nomination in 80, he's uh, describing the moment when that bipartisan neoliberal consensus slams down, right? When, oh, the broader like political economy, economic questions that used to be the domain of the political parties are no longer going to be on the political table because neither one of us are going to mention them. Neither party can now talk about stuff like deindustrialization, uh, you know, uh, trade debt, uh, or uh, uh, trade deficits, because to be a world reserve currency in the post-Bretton Woods system, you have to be a, tr uh, a consumer and not a producer industrially. That, it's, it doesn't work the other way. We have to have a trade deficit, and a big one, to float the dollar as because that's what floats that's what makes the dollar circulate that's what's that's the that's the capillary action of the vascular system of the world economy where the dollar is the uh, the, the, the reserve currency we have to ha run a trade deficit which means we have to deindustrialize and neither party will argue about that and they didn't for years so it became so what filled the void was culture and culture filled the void completely and then you have more secure white people, the white people who are less touched personally by the, uh, by the immiseration uh, caused by deindustrialization, they, um, they have essentially the luxury to pursue social liberalism and claim that social liberalism will, will solve the, the misery of our lives because they can't name the real cause anymore. Nobody can name the thing. Nobody can name the thing. We can only pretend to have a cultural response to it that could make the difference. It's all snake oil. 
the thing is some people are aware they're selling snake oil and some people don't know they're selling snake oil. That's the real difference. That was the fight in the Republican Party. The internationalists knew they were selling snake oil. The local producers thought it was real stuff, that it really cures your ails. That's the, that's the difference within these parties. Because the, the real question can't be answered. Because we need to run a huge trade deficit. To keep this thing, this, this fucking global thing coming, and most importantly, keep this thing flowing with us in the driver's seat. Because uh, my, 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 uh, that MMT shit, that's technically true right now. It's just describing events as long as the uh, dollar is a reserve currency because we need to build the fucking military because we're the cops. We're, we're the head of the octopus and we need to have, uh, we're, we, we, we direct the military arm, the police arm. So we have to have, be able to run huge deficits and we also have to have a population that can buy things because we're the consumer of last resort. So we have to, we can't do it. We can't stop spending or, uh, or taxing. Or I mean, we can't stop spending money on the military and we can't stop with um, uh, spending money directly or indirectly through quantitative easing and through government programs, putting money into people's hands so that, and credit into people's hands so that they can keep buying. Credit being the important thing. Like the, it's all just credit to keep the system going. Uh, and so social liberals uh, have, the, have the, uh, the cultural position and social position and be, due to their wealth, due to their, their holding on to that fragment of, work, middle, of middle class wealth that we're still hanging on to that's slowly shrinking. This iceberg of post-war wealth that went to the, middle, the white middle class mo mainly and is now slowly shrinking. And people still holding on to some. And the people holding on to more are the liberals. And uh, so they have the, the they, because, because they have institutions like colleges that sort of launder their continued, uh, at the top, their continued role in exploiting, right? Like they're exploiters and they know it. And you go to college to sort of soothe yourself of feeling bad about it. And that leaves you, coming out of the end, uh, liberal, socially. If you don't go to college, if you're on the bottom, if you're being exploited, well, then you don't have a, really a lot of guilt to assuage in the first place. And then you don't go through the process. Uh, and so you are more likely to blame uh, cultural elements, especially if there's a party that exists to convince you that there are cultural explanations for this and that blame other people for things because you're trying to blame somebody for, your, for why you're mad. The liberal isn't trying to blame anybody. A liberal is trying to assuage guilt. Those are the two poles of, uh, of motivation for politics. The liberal wants to not feel guilty. The conservative wants to blame somebody. And so the Republicans are there to have scapegoats at a cultural level for them to go to. And that's why they gravitate towards there. Liberals want, uh, they want to feel virtuous. And therefore, going for the underdog makes them feel better. And it makes them feel like they deserve their wealth now. And what happened with the Republican Party, as Perlstein points out, is that as um, economics fell away as the thing you could actually talk about when you're running for anything uh, and got filled with culture, that meant that the party itself filled with people who cared about culture. Because the people who care about culture, they're producing people who don't have that old understanding. They don't understand 
that these things are just to rile, to rile up the rubes. They don't understand that this is supposed to be rhetoric because they're learning, they're seeping the same culture that everyone else is now absorbing, that all emanates from the alienation caused by deindustrialization, cutting off growth for the American uh, working class. And so over time, the party itself becomes taken over by those people, the true believers. And now what we see with Trump is this, the, like his war with the deep state is a war with the now totally triumphant lumpen reactionary hicks, basically, over the remaining shell of establishment Republicans who understand that they're in a global fucking system. We are in a global system, you dumb hicks. We, we can't bring the jobs back. You have to give people bread and circuses. What are you doing? But guys like Trump and the, and the people who follow Trump, uh, to one way or another, they don't understand that. They think that like the capitalism is discrete economies and that America needs to compete against the other discrete economies. Not that capitalism is monopolizing and totalizing. And that there is no separating these. There's no separating us from China. There's no separating us from Europe. Or, or Mexico or anybody else. There's only facilitating the flow. But because we don't talk about that to people and no actual conservative voters think that's what's going on, they think we're in a battle between states, they vote for people who also believe that and now they run everything. And they're in a, in a civil war with the remaining uh, institutional memory of the bureaucrats who are more connected to the data and less connected to the ideology than anybody in the system, still knows to be necessary. And that's why Trump got in there and he immediately folded on everything because th that establishment bit back. But now, over time, we're seeing that the pressure is mounting because that's the center of gravity of the Republican Party. And like that's the kind of thing that you kind of hope could have happened in reverse with Bernie. He gets in there and you've got the true believers uh, but now, you know, the idea being that now it's believing that, that seeing through their lie as opposed to the Republicans who are just taking seriously the propaganda of, their, up, of the, uh, you know, the upper ranks. And that's because at the base, the Democratic Party could theoretically make a egalitarian anti-capitalist argument, which is impossible for the current Republican Party to do. Conserv capitalism is embedded in its DNA. The argument, the debate between the populists and the establishment is just what that means. It's, a, it's, a, it's an information question. It's not ideological. And I would say that the establishment ones know, understand the nature of capitalism more than the nationalists and the populists. So they're dumber, technically. Even if they don't like capitalism and that's good, uh, they really think, no, it's just this type of capitalism and that we can get a good capitalism if we whiten it up they have less information or they're dumber and it's a combination of both and they reinforce each other. They're dumber conservatives than the establishment ones who understand that this is a global system and you have to manage flow and that means cultural change is going to happen and you have to diffuse it by, by giving cultural grievance uh, a, a vent. Whew! All right. I hope that made sense. I was thinking about that all day, and I, I was like, this is going to be a little abstract, I, and, I, and there's going to be a lot of threads. I hope it made sense. So anyway, that's why that's a, a good book. And that's also why the, the liberal culture war can never be the place where anything will be won. 
It's impossible. It is a busy box. It is an orgone accumulator for all the political alienation that should be channeled towards building institutions of resistance to capitalism. You're just putting all your juices in there. You're filling it up. You're nutting into this thing every day, and all of your political uh, anima goes out of you. And then you just have a sandwich and go to bed. So yeah, stop, uh, stop putting orgone, stop getting the orgone, keep your orgone to yourself. You, sometimes you get an overflow and you gotta, you gotta like relieve the pressure from the tire. And I, I understand I do it. I have to do it. I mean, I have to do it for the job, but also I have to do it for myself, but I try to do it less and less. I try to wean myself. Like today, I tried to start talking big picture and then I ended up talking back once again. But the thing is, I'm not even talking here about, uh, political, I'm not even talking here about, um, the internet. I mean, I'm sorry, but the social issues, the social, the culture war cannot be a, pl- a, a place. That doesn't just mean on the internet. It means anywhere. It can't be a productive place. And I think you'll find anyone who says, well, what about X, Y, and Z? What they're talking about is the potential for those things to be wedded to a, a, a socialist uh, project. That you're talking about breaking open a consensus that is now open for uh, capture and it free, free, is this free-flowing. And it's a question of how to exploit that, how to use that energy the most beneficially. But that is always within mind, the knowledge that it cannot be the end point of struggle, because then you end up going from tearing down one statue to trying to tear down a bigger statue and just finding more emotionally satisfying realms of symbolic action. <sighs> Ah, damn it. Um, Somebody asked, how do materialism and Buddhism go together? In my mind, it comes down to this. Buddhism is at base to me, and you can say I'm wrong, but it works for me, and that's what matters to me, and no one else can check my work because there is no great test taker in the sky. Sorry. Uh, It's just an acknowledgement of the unity of everything, a very, very fundamental basis. The idea that the universe is one thing eternally. We are all connected. We are all the same stuff to the point that our assumption of separateness is a delusion. I think that's it. And then the next thing is the next recognition is, okay, so separateness is an illusion, but it still is one that... um, that persists because of our accumulated experience of it. You know, like, it's, it's like echolocation. We build a world around us that becomes real. And the separate, that's how, we, that's how consciousness is formed out of the void. And then it's right, it's, it, that is thinking that it's a void and not that it's just more of the same stuff. And I think materialism is uh, the analysis of how that illusory but still existent uh, material world operates. It's like, okay, there, separateness is an illusion, but get, look through this, this dimension, this, this, this shaft of light, it shapes up to look like something. How does that something operate? Like how the, the, it's, it's describing the waves, like if you imagine the universe as a giant ball of water with waves rippling back and forth throughout it, 
Materialism is describing how they, how they came to be and how they are bounce, bouncing off of each other and how they will bounce off of each other in the future. And I think that dialectical, the grinding of, of, of opposites, uh, of, of, of objective to subjective, uh, momentum and position, I think that's what generates uh, the form that material, the material illusion makes, takes. All right, that was good. I felt good. Uh, so let's take some questions because that was pretty heavy. Let's get silly with it. If anyone has like some fun history, counterfactuals or, or F Mary kill things or just, you know, how many ducks I can fight, I'd like to take a nice little wind down. I grilled, uh, yeah, I grilled a couple of times last week. I did Bergs and, uh, and Glizzies, as we now have to call them. As now in my head, I can't call them anything else. I heard it like two weeks ago, and now it's instinctive. That's how culture works, so insidious. But of course, I'll probably forget it in another week. It holds you tight and then lets you go. I'm going to try to smoke some pork. In fact, guys, this is a good chance for me to announce this. So tomorrow... If things go well, I might cancel it. Cancel it. I'm gonna to try to smoke a, a pork butt tomorrow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some stuff on it. Put some rub on. I'm gonna get one of those low and smoke uh, things going, and it's gonna. I'm gonna do it. It's only got like two pounds of uh, two pounds of pork shoulder, so probably like five hours, five six hours. I'm gonna make a hoisin sauce that someone gave me a recipe for. Uh, but I'll have backup if that doesn't work. And I'm hoping to stream at some point during the process so you can like take a look at what it, how it's looking and watch me maybe spritz it down with some, uh, with some vinegar solution. So if everything goes well, uh, I'll have that. But I'm going to have backup probably, uh, just some steaks or something in case it, uh, it goes to shit because you don't want to uh, leave everybody empty-handed after they come for a grill. Uh, but I do have a meat thermometer, so I know I'm not going to kill anybody. Apparently I had one the entire time. I didn't even know I did. I found it on top of the refrigerator, so we're good. Uh, I the Masan the, that weird-ass uh, 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 poster that, that Cuomo made, someone, Ursula Lawrence, who's uh, on Twitter, uh, shout out, she pointed out to me that it looks very much like one of the paintings that Harwood Fritz Merrill made of like the, the symbolic alchemical paintings that explain the, the nature of the universe and how to pierce its mystery. He, he, uh, it looks very alchemical. It looks very, very much like an esoteric uh, chart. It looks like one of those things that you find in a book of uh, errata from like a, a, a famous schizophrenic uh, intellectual. One of those like Henry Darger guys who leaves a tiny apartment filled with scrawls that end up getting published by Soft Skull Press. And there it is in the back. Oh yes, the, 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 the consciousness raising uh, arch. This is, this is the cowbell of, uh, of eternity here. It was really cool. Or like, yeah, like a medieval text. Like a, a medieval, 
a medieval drawing of like uh, the kingdom of heaven or um, or illustration from it looks like if you turn it upside down it could have been Dante's nine uh, rings whoa what if what if you put a like a black light on it or something or put like put a candle behind it and it just becomes that that'd be pretty funny god damn it I'm so mad I'm so disappointed that Lodge 39 is not going to get another season they had such they were setting up such good stuff and you know that it wasn't going to be a thing where oh it's going to lose its uh momentum they had I guarantee you they had like a season number uh they set it a season number in advance like I would guess like four or five probably would have tied it up damn it shouldn't have made a deal unless I could have sworn to get them at least three seasons because I think you can do okay with three but two is especially when you got such a great uh mystery in the background all the stuff with uh, Orbis and the parabola group and of course Dud's dad who 100% is not dead like zero percent chance that uh, their father is dead, the Dudley, the Dudley clan's dad. No way. He will come back. He would come back for sure. Third season. Uh, although I think it could have been a, a fun twist if Dud finds out that uh, he finds evidence that his dad's alive, and of course Liz doesn't believe him, and he follows the trail and finds out that yeah, his dad did fake his own death, but then he had died subsequently. I think that'd be kind of funny and like fit with the themes of the show. But yeah, and like I'm assuming that the Parabola group invented Bitcoin. Like that seems to be pretty clear that that's going to happen. I, I would like to know more. I would like to know more. I'm clicking on that and they won't give it to me. Fucking Bezos rescued the, the Expanse from cancellation and put it on Prime. And it's like people tell me that's a good show, whatever, sci-fi, blah, blah, blah. Not really my thing. And it just shows that, that fucking lizard man has no taste that he won't pick up fucking Lodge 49 for one more. I'm, I'm calling you out, Bezos, on your own platform, motherfucker. Bald bitch. That's right. I'm on Twitch right now. Hey, I'm speaking to you. You fucking gecko-ass motherfucker. Put the show back. Put the show on fucking Prime. If I had to live in Europe, where would I live? Probably, maybe Ber people. Berlin was Berlin is it's it's a cliche to say, but it's very nice. Ireland too, but realistically, Iceland in a compound, geothermal heat, um, uh, hydroponic uh, agriculture, interlocking fields of fire across absolutely empty lava flows. Until the volcano inside goes off and kills you, you'd be fucking, uh, you could survive any disaster scenario. The Netherlands is nice too. I have to say Amsterdam is very charming. Where is the best possibility for a leftist Marxist movement? You know what? I kind of think it's... Uh, I've talked to people who've made this argument, and I think they have something. I think it's the Chinese working class. Because they are the people who hold 
the condition closest to traditional Marxist notions of class consciousness formation. Densely packed urban factory workers. That was, that's who built socialism in, the, in the Europe. Now, of course, because of cultural difference and time difference and technology difference, it doesn't mean it's going to work this time along the same axis because Marx was figuring a certain cultural context. Now, manufacturing of consent and, uh, and uh, alienating people from their class consciousness and from their very spirit being have elevated surveillance, technology, uh, propaganda. Like we've created an entire virtual, virtual dimension where people can dump all of their energy and discontent into. That's something Marx literally couldn't have imagined. So that means we're not in the same situation. But those people are the closest we've got. And so if there is anything to that notion of this is the friction that creates the fire, they've got the best kindling. And that's why uh, I think the dream, the dream scenario, even in the catastrophe, the rolling catastrophe that now is going to be the 21st century, there's no way out of it. It's going to be a catastrophe century. I mean, we're already starting. We're here. It's, it, this is, normal's over. This is the new normal until the new normal shows up. And it's all going to be bad. But the one where there's recovery towards, uh, recovery away from this critical uh, failure, this critical overemphasis on capitalism, critical overconsumption, uh, towards some sort of stable uh, 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 world system of, of sort of positive feedback loop of socialism where, where uh, consumption is distributed southward and transformed into efficiency, and then that efficiency is just like a, uh, a, the same kind of concept of a flow that exists in our capitalism in a world system, but positively towards, I hate to use the word, but healing, uh, uh, away from exploitation towards cooperation. Uh, so that's, if that's going to happen, I think it's going to happen in some sort of union between China and, and the United States on the terms laid out by the negotiators uh, who would be, in the good scenario, the, uh, the working class in some way, like working or in, America, in the United States, like working class plus progressive bourgeois instead of being led by just this rump, uh, social liberal, nothing else, uh, uh, current bourgeois that we have now against the Chinese, like a renewed Chinese working class. Now, the Chinese working class, one of the things they have to fight against is that the government that they would have to organize against calls itself communist. So they're going to have a harder time than previous generations of uh, alienated workers putting a name to their alienation because part of the descriptive architecture that would have got them to class consciousness is going to be tarnished and, and alienated from. So that's one of the many reasons that we're on a, we're on a bad trajectory and, and uh, any good outcome is, is not in any way to be assumed. But anything can happen still. And of course, the bad, the bad version of that is a corporate merger uh, carried out between the billionaire-captured Chinese Communist Party and uh, our bourgeois dictatorship parties representing capital, just handshaking across the Bering Strait. And then that, then we get, then the, then we get, uh, then we do get the Matt Stoller nightmare, where Chinese social control gets uh, imported entirely to the United States. That is what would happen. So Stoller's, Stoller's nightmare is absolutely a possibility. Uh, but his, where he gets it wrong is because he's a fucking libertarian because he does not, he hates the concept of dialectical reasoning. Uh, he, he's like almost a pure liberal in his thinking. He thinks the way to defeat, to stop that is by c uh, having conflict with China. 
meaning heightening conflict between our prospective working classes. Yeah, that's a great idea, dumbass. How'd that work in World War I? How did the problem of the real, the real threat to like democratic institutions in Western Europe, to like Kaiserite so, uh, 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 abs- like monarchism, like the central powers, like the, the, don't you think there, I mean, obviously a lot of it was propaganda, but there was a genuine concern among like the leftists who ended up supporting uh, the war credits in their respective countries, and it broke open. And you're going to use, use those same principles, those same principles of, of, of xenophobia and nationalism that mystify and obfuscate the class conflict that we have to fucking inst- uh, create? You're only going to ma- lead to the worst outcome, where they just blow each other up, and then uh, we have a new dark age where emerging from the rubble of our uh, global capitalist empire is a neo-feudal technocratic archipelago of, of uh, remaining stakeholders... Your Bezoses, your Zuckerbergs, your Cokes, uh, your Oprahs, all of them now using their technology, the remnant technology that they have disproportionate access to, to command a neo-feudal economy of direct service. And all those beautiful liberal institutions and even communist dreams of social equality fall into the dustbin of history for another millennium. So good luck with that, Stoller, you dumb motherfucker. The way to defeat that danger of the corporate takeover, the merger happening that you pretend to think is a takeover because you don't understand that there are, it's, this, it's two hands of the same thing. The way to defeat that is to establish working class solidarity and functionality through the institutions. Hopefully rising labor militancy. Like I said, big box retail is a huge site of struggle there. Uh, and and the party. Some sort of workers' party, maybe? I don't know. I've been, I, I've been thinking more and more about the need for that. I wouldn't have said that before the Bernie thing, but like... And I don't think we were wrong to do it. I think it was necessary. It was like, you needed to be disenchanted of that as an option. And there was no way to wish that away. It had to happen. But now I'm wondering if that's a necessity. I don't know for sure because, you know, it all, it's all about the response. And we're going to see some massive shocks coming up to people in terms of the level of exploitation and alienation that they're going to be asked to suffer. They're going to have to alienate themselves from their own, their own life. They're going to be told that they're going to have to voluntarily risk their life more than they already are, consciously anyway, in order to keep doing things that they don't even want to do. I mean, my God, can you imagine the turbocharging of alienation where it's like, hey, you know that job you don't even like and you do technically risk every day you're going to get by, hit by a car or shot by somebody while you're there or whatever? Uh, to, add, to that, we're going to add the conscious knowledge that there's a contagious fucking disease out there that could any moment get you and kill you or even worse and more likely, uh, may have you give it to an older family member and then they get sick. And then you get to make that risk. You have to take that risk of your own volition. You have to internalize that. That's, what, that's the wage slavery concept. That's why wage slavery is in many ways more insidious uh, psychologically even than chattel slavery. Because you internalize it even greater. You are the one doing this. You're the one who went to work. You're the one who got your grandma sick. You're the one who, you, as they cut off your leg, oh, I deserve this. In a way that it's unique and it's horrifying. And that's going to go somewhere, is all I'm saying. That's alienation's going somewhere. And there's very little organizational uh, bottle 
there's a very little organizational uh, uh, infrastructure to catch any of it. Like it's a, it's going to be a raging torrent, and we each have have like a couple of guys' hats and like a bucket. There's no there's no like conduit, you know. It's people just everybody bailing with their hand with their hats as this raging torrent, as like all the thought leaders and all of like the strategists and all the politicians are just trying to grab the bucket loads. We could be building an actual uh, conduit to catch it and direct it. And I think like some of that is being done, but we're too early in it to know what parts are going to be durable. And I think that, honestly, I think that this election is going to be massively important. Not the results necessarily, but how the parties respond to the crisis that's going to be perpetuating itself. Uh, that's why I, I, I can't be very optimistic, but I also cannot go black pill in any way because I don't have enough confidence in my ability to predict the future to say that I know what the fuck's going to go on here. And I don't trust anyone who claims that they do because I'm sorry, uh, we're all, we all have that Dunning-Kruger effect somewhere in us because you cannot fully know your own biases and you can't know things you don't know. You can't know, you, you can't always know that there are things you don't know, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, and he was right. Like that, the thing he said was very accurate, uh, but it's just he was just saying it to cover his ass. But someone says it's too late. I think you can say pretty definitively it's too late to prevent a century of catastrophes. But there are degrees of catastrophe, you know? Like the crisis of the third century uh, is different than, you know, the Justinian plague is different than, uh, like, the Mongol invasions of, uh, you know, like, there are periods of, of, of dislocation and, uh, and uh, warfare, you know? But, like, all right, what about, compare, like, Ireland in the 70s, the Troubles, right? You could say that that was a period of prolonged social crisis with a lot of misery. Compare that to, I don't know, uh, Persia during the, uh, during the Mongol invasion. You know, the thing where they wiped out maybe 90% of the population. There are degrees here, and they can be, they can be shaped only in the moment that they occur because the conditions obtain then, and they don't obtain now, and we can only prepare. We can only prepare ourselves. Christopher Hill, someone uh, asked about Christopher Hill as a Marxist uh, historian. Uh, yeah, he's really good. He wrote a book about, uh, that I read about Oliver Cromwell as like a, you know, proto-bourgeois figure. Really good. Yes, Ellen, Mer- Ellen Melskins Wood is also very good. And of course, Hobbesbaum. If you want to do European history, 19th, 20th century European history, you got to go with Hobbesbaum. You're going to come in here and you're going to be quoting Hobbesbaum on me. Age of extremes. Yeah, CLR James, also very good. Come on. Cedric Robinson, excellent. Yeah, these guys got it all covered. Everyone they're saying is pretty good. I wouldn't call Tony Jute a Marxist, but he's, he has a very good handle on the, the, uh, the shifting political economy of Europe. 
Ooh, somebody asked a very interesting counterfactual. I was actually talking to Brendan about this the other day. Um, counterfact. I think one of the. Uh, I think it'd be fun to, to to. You could do kind of an experiment with counterfactuals where most of the big ones that people talk about, you can reason out in your head how oh it wouldn't change things that much because at the end of the day, events, individual events, cannot. They have a, they have a butterfly effect and, and they create a pattern of randomness, uh, but. Individual discrete events, for the most part, can't shift things if there isn't the necessary conditions for them to take the cultural conditions. If they're not there, it will be overwhelmed by the flow, just the stultifying reality of the existing institutions. Uh, but the ones that are really interesting then, the counterfactuals that are very interesting, are the ones where you have more of a fluid situation. And uh, the Henry Wallace nomination is one of those things where that could have actually very easily happened. And if it had, in the fluid moment of post-World War II, when you had, like, the, I mean, the, the Democratic Party had gone from being, like, a twilight struggle. At the beginning of, the, of FDR's administration, the, the, um, the Democratic Party started out in a war between East Coast progressive types, neo-progressives, and uh, Southern reactionaries. And that was, uh, and that battle was demonstrated by the ticket. FDR, Eastern elite liberal, whose uh, New York governorship had been a laboratory of New Deal stuff that would become a New Deal policies. And John Nance Garner of Texas, an old school uh, 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 Southern Democrat and, and everything that represented. Pork, ball, pork barrel politics plus uh, good old-fashioned white supremacy. Uh, and also isolationist politics because of that narrow-minded focus of uh, local conservatism I told you about. And by the end of the administration, it was sort of a civil war, at least before Truman got in there, it was a civil war between uh, the East Coast elites guys and fucking communists, actual communists, uh, who, were represent who ended up being represented in the people who ran the uh, Henry Wallace campaign for the third party campaign in 1948 which wouldn't have been necessary if by just a few quirks of history he'd ended up being vice president when FDR died, which absolutely could have happened. Uh, and that's like, yeah, of course, we don't have an institution, we don't have, uh, we don't have anything like the institutions to accept communist rule in America. And I would say, no, not out front, not outwardly, but I think you had enough genuine left-wing, mobile, internally mobilized, uh, organizational energy within the government and within the labor movement that you could have had the kind of uh, a, a genuine entryism. Uh, but Truman being president uh, really helped slam the door on that. Really slam the door on that. And you imagine, like, he dies, maybe he dies before FDR, become, uh, before, before the end of the third term. Hard to imagine him losing a re-election in 44 before there'd been any chance for conservatism to pick up the pieces and start, you know, assembly, assembling the, uh, the, the cultural, because at that point, culture was still saying that the Soviets were the good guys. And it had to, because it was still the war was on. 
And it was only after the war was over that we were able to have that cultural, that mighty Wurlitzer of ma consent manufacturing turned against communism and against the Russians. So there wouldn't have been cultural antibodies to fight it off. It's hard to think, I don't, it's such a big change that it's hard to really think how it could have actually played out. I mean, a lot of people say it would have prevented the Cold War. Uh, and I think that, I mean, since, since the, the Cold War was almost entirely imposed by the United States on a uh, isolationist-looking Soviet Union that had no real interest in, in brinksmanship, which they proved in fucking Greece by letting the, the, the whole uh, Greek left out to dry to get fucking rounded up and massacred by the monarchists and the British. That was where the split from U uh, Tito happened, is because Tito was like, what the fuck are you doing? This is another, this is a front of the global revolution. And uh, Stalin's like, yeah, I'm trying to secure my borders here. I'm trying to, I'm, this shit's chess, motherfucker. It ain't checkers. That was basically Stalin and Tito. Ooh, this is a good question. Matt, Trump or Biden will leave less blood on your hands. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think this has been emphasized enough. We all, people like to say, what difference does it make when you vote in a swing state? I would argue that from a metaphysical perspective, no vote anywhere matters. No individual vote anywhere matters. It's the principle of the fucking avalanche and the, the snowflake. It is, a, it is a moral... The results of an election are a moral avalanche that crash upon all of us. An individual vote is an individual snowflake that lands on your finger, morally. It's like, it's barely anything. And so I think people really should more embrace that idea. Not don't vote, but don't put anything behind your vote. Not, don't, certainly don't put anything uh, 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 psychically important. And the reason that's important is because that's where uh, the whole argument against electoralism holds sway. It's not necessarily that, oh, you know, uh, that, that there's some choice between elections and grassroots activism. It's that elections, if they are pursued with passion, do divert because they take away your energy. You commit yourself psychically to voting as a principle, and then you do things like volunteer for a candidate or go online and argue about which candidate you support. And that leaves you with less mana, less anima, less jouissance, less orgone, to direct towards a different campaign. That doesn't mean don't vote. It means know that you're just going in there and voting. And the thing is, is the more stuff you do in your real life about your politics, the more organizing you do with your labor, with like trying to form a union or trying to help the union you have or organizing for a union uh, or uh, organizing protests, organizing tenants or associations, organizing any kind of, any kind of fucking connective tissue building, any social repair, any repairing of the social net. You're going to find that you're not going to not want to vote. Maybe you like voting. I like voting. But you're not going to think about it that much. And you're going to go in there and press the button and you're going to leave. Because you're connected. The people who sweat over their vote and turn it into a talisman, turning into the soul-defining feature of their worth as a person. Trump voter. Obama. I voted for Obama. These things meaning anything. That is because it's the only political action you carry out. So it has to have all the meaning attached to it. So it doesn't matter who you vote for anywhere. I'll probably write in Bernie. But once I'm in there, I'll bets are off because it's, it's blowing away an eyelash. If you feel like you're co contributing politically somewhere else. Because it will feel fake if you, just, if you just say, ah, voting doesn't matter, but you don't do anything else. You're still posting online all the time about Biden. 
Guess what, buddy? You don't actually think that. If you actually thought that, you'd be doing something else. See, I got people in my, in my freaking menchies making an argument for a person. It doesn't matter. It's tears in the rain. It doesn't fucking matter. Write in Snuffleupagus. I wrote in Drill in 2016. Maybe I'll do it again. I'm just going to vote for the Harper's Letter. That's going to be who I'm going to vote for. Just write it in right there. Yeah, I'll write in Matthew Iglesias. There you go. A guy, I, I mean, I don't hate him anymore. I just pity him. I really pity him. And I realize why. It's because, I, I realize why he's so loathsome and such a toad boy. It's because he's miserable every moment of his life. Because everyone in his life is essentially his coworker, His co-stakeholder. He does not have friends. Everyone he has, all of, all of everyone he knows in his life is essentially a coworker. They're all in this big fucking coffee room together, and they're all coworkers. And that's why a lot of these media people are liberal because they don't have friends; they only have coworkers. They only have colleagues. The most bloodless, reptilian word imaginable: colleagues. And what that means is you can never be really ever comfortable around them. Because you know that at the end of the day, they're a stranger, and that means that they're going to put their interests above yours. With a friend, you know that no matter what you do, there's going to be self-interest, you know, with anyone, but there's also going to be concern for, for you, and there's people are going to be willing to sacrifice for you. And that's, I think, that's why I pity him, is because I realize, oh, like, I don't really have, I don't have colleagues. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like Dom Toretto too much here, but I don't got colleagues. I don't got coworkers. I got family. And I think it's because of the different models we live in. Like, uh, we are, like I said, we're pre-capitalist artisans. Uh, Podcasters who are directly paid for by their listeners are artisans, as I've said. So we have the relationship of artisans. Like, not not artisan apprentice. Guys to get, like, guild members together. Like, in a set, like, one of those really solid guilds where they, like, get hammered every night and they, you know lead a procession through the town and, and throw a feast and then dedicate a, uh, a um, uh, dedicate like doors at the cathedral and like run for town council and become burgers. The dude's guild, exactly. So we are friends and, are like a, and family in that way. Uh, but because Iglesias has embraced the pursuit, like he ran towards establishment, uh, he ran towards establishment uh, validation just like a lemming, like just barreling across the tundra, eyes pin, pinpointed, uh, just pinned out, dedicated. And now he's here. Congratulations. You won the media game. And what is media in the 21st century? It is going online and selling yourself and selling your takes and in a giant uh, online office with everybody, where everybody, it, all conversation is conducted over the fucking water cooler. That's it. And so all of those HR 
rules and all of that enforced alienation from each other. That, that the culture that makes office life amenable to socialism and amenable to socialist radicalism and, radical, and, and organizing because every ritual of it is alienating. And one of the big ones is you can't really ever let your guard down because somebody will cut your fucking throat. And I, everyone, I, I, I don't do that. Like, I'm not online building myself up that way because I don't have to, I don't have fucking shareholders to, to uh, answer to. I don't have Vox shareholders to answer to. I don't have co-stakeholder Ezra Klein to answer to. I don't have to go out to, like, a deliverables conference over this. Uh, and so I, I, don't have to, I don't have to feel anxious when I'm actually interacting with my friends who are my colleagues, technically. But like I said, like guild, mem guild members. Uh, so that's why I can't... I used to hate Iglesias. Absolutely. Oh, God, when I was like a takes... I, I was an impotent, cloutless takesmith. I hated him. But now that I've like kind of become his peer in media anyway, you know, in terms of someone who's like on a certain platform in the discourse and taken like the other path, I can look across the chasm and all I have to, I can only pity him. But I hated him when I was like more frustrated. When I wanted what he had, I hated him. But now that I know that that would have been a poison chalice, I can't hate him anymore. Uh, yeah, I would love to get guilds back. But not like, not, not as, 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 uh, Labor exploitation vehicles is what they became, of course. You know, the way they exploited uh, apprentices and, and limited labor pool, limited uh, access. But no, I'm try I try to not hate anybody anymore. I, don't, I, I get, get kind of like head up about uh, people being willfully obtuse. You know, I'll still yell from time to time because it's instinctive, but I can't hate the people anymore. Certainly the media people, because none of them individually are even really doing anything bad enough to warrant a real moral reckoning. You know, it's the snowflakes and the fucking avalanche thing again. You can't, it's more, it's more morally weighty than voting, but it's not that much. You're still just grinding out takes in the take mill. How, how bad could you be? You know, and that doesn't go for, and of course that, that, that level of, uh, of empathy is then not as much that you would extend to somebody in, say, Judith Miller's position, you know, or somebody who actively uh, produced propaganda that had adverse effects in the real world. And then, you know, political leaders get even less, business leaders get even less, but there has to be a baseline everything for everybody. All right, one more question, then I'm, I'm winding up. Even lizards like Bezos. I mean, the whole lizard thesis is that you become less human as you become more powerful, and I think that's true. You, you armor yourself against your fellow people. You, arm, you delude yourself further and further into believing that you are an isolated consciousness and that you're not part of any greater being. And that's a delusion. You're, you're driving yourself insane. You're turning yourself into a lizard. And you're, you're sandblasting your own fucking uh, half of your brain's ability to perceive the world because these things are perceptible these things 
this, the connection is not is not it doesn't is not entirely built intellectually. That comes after. It becomes it comes after you are overwhelmed by the by the experience of oneness with others, and he's never felt that. And if he has, he fights it off ferociously, and that makes him miserable. And that's where the empathy comes in because I know that Bezos is fucking miserable. I mean, he might still be deluding himself into thinking that he's going to inject his body into a robot, but like one of these days, the whole thing's going to fall apart, even if it's a hundred years from now. And then he will die and go to hell. Not in terms of actually burning or a soul or anything, but his last moments will stretch into an endless agony. Ah. Anyway, spreading the love, guys. Spread love. Bye-bye.